Welcome to Huntland. If you like to stay up to date on hunting tactics, land management, land values, and land market dynamics, this is the podcast for you. This week's show is brought to you by First South Farm Credit. What does a farm mean to you? Maybe it's just a piece of land where you can go to relax or enjoy the outdoors. But whatever the farm means to you, First South Farm Credit can help you finance or refinance that perfect piece of land. As a successful financial cooperative, First South shares its profits with its borrowers in the form of a patronage refund, which lowers your cost of borrowing. To find out how First South can help you, visit their website at firstsouthland.com or call them at 800-955-1722. They are an equal housing lender. All right, Clint, let's get right into it and go check back in with Jonathan Smith, the Executive Director of Timber Mart South for this week's current timber market prices update for Louisiana. Jonathan, welcome back to Hunting Land. Hi, Joe. Thanks for having me on. You know, last time we were talking about Arkansas and uh, Louisiana's, are we going to see the same trends in Louisiana that we see in Arkansas or does it have its own set of supply and demand and, and market forces governing what's going on in Louisiana. Yeah, Louisiana, we call it the Arklatex region quite often around the office here. That area over there seems to work together, but they are a little bit different. Arkansas, Louisiana, and Texas all have a lot of similar things going on. They have alternative income streams. They uh, also have uh, really good timber. So it's an opportunity for landowners out there. Uh, the markets are similar. Quarter over quarter, uh, we're pretty flat. And I'll jump right in here and give you the pine uh, stumpage prices if you want me to. We were about $26 a ton for pine saw timber, $16.20 for pine chipping saw, and $8.15 for pine pulpwood in second quarter 2020. Jonathan, these numbers we're talking about here are quarter two prices? Yes, that is correct. This is second quarter 2020 prices. In Louisiana, maybe this is the trend across the South as a whole, but in Louisiana, did timber prices follow a cycle? Uh, So will we see dips, peaks, and valleys throughout the year based on the time of year? Is it any different in Louisiana than it is across the rest of the South? Louisiana generally follows the same trend. Timber prices are fairly seasonal and mostly that is not necessarily driven by anything other than the wet periods of the year. So when you get uh, in the summertime, even though you get summer little afternoon showers, pop-up showers in the summertime, you've got plenty of heat to dry it off. Whereas you get more in the wintertime, when you get a couple of days of rain, that can make for some difficult logging conditions. Because of our Uh, increased timber supply all across the south, it usually takes some sort of limiting factor like the lack of logability to be able to cause a shortage, if you will, of availability. And that's that's where you see your bikes and your dips and your timber prices. Well, last time we talked, hardwood was the, I guess, the bright spot in timber prices, not necessarily from a quarter over quarter perspective, but hardwood was definitely commanding a higher price. Is it, is it the same way in Louisiana? Uh, hardwood is still your premium product. Uh, hardwood saw timber was at thirty one thirty seven for second quarter 2020, and uh, hardwood pulpwood was at $8.44. So that's still about a $5 premium to pine saw timber, and then your hardwood pulpwood 
is getting pretty competitive there. So your Fort Woods will begin to compete for market share. So Jonathan, you know, we, we've talked a good bit on here about the supply factors and how, and how those relate to timber prices and, and that in the South, there is a, there's an oversupply of pine timber. Is there also an oversupply of hardwood? I mean, we're seeing those prices trending down. Are they saying this? Is it the same for hardwoods as it is for pine? I don't know that hardwood is um, an oversupply. There's plenty of hardwood. If you look at the federal, the Forest Service inventory data that's available, we have plenty of inventory for pine and hardwood. We're growing more than we are harvesting, so we are a sustainable industry. You know, those prices, I really think it goes back to accessibility, and hardwood is one of those things that is really driven by accessibility. Most of your good hardwoods grow on more difficult logging sites. So if it gets wet, then it's more difficult. You have a difficult time getting the, the mill has a harder time getting the supply. Uh, same thing if you're on a steep slope and if it gets wet or something. So a lot of that is really closely tied to weather. It's probably your number one driver of prices going up and down outside of a longer term trend. Well, we've hit on supply a lot, but we hadn't talked as much about demand. So housing starts, I know, is probably the number one thing you guys look at. But what about, there's two other things I want to talk about today. And in addition to housing starts, and that's remodeling and also fiber products like cardboard. So since COVID, do you guys have any data that is pointing to a trend with housing starts and and also with remodeling? So with, with housing starts, uh, you know, we started the year off with a pretty good trajectory. We were all pretty optimistic that we were going to get pretty close to one and a half million housing starts. COVID stopped and for a couple of months, things really slowed down on housing starts. There was a surprise in that housing starts picked back up in June. So it really, I think, which a lot of timber product indicators are really economy driven. So housing starts, it really depends on what happens with the economy. If people get back to work, get off of unemployment and are able to secure mortgages or or secure construction loans and and continue with the housing uh, starts that seem to have started, then that's that's a good thing for the timber industry. The housing, I mean, the remodeling and Those things, I think that was probably the biggest surprise. If you can attribute the increase in lumber prices to anything, it's probably that uh, remodeling number that is out there. I don't know that number right off the top of my head, but it was a significant increase. And we all were told to stay home (laughs) for COVID, but Lowe's was open. So. I know. Hey, I know. My house, looks, my house looks great. My <laughs> wife, my wife had us as busy as could be for those eight weeks she was out of work. And uh, I mean, there's projects going on. Like uh, she's working harder during COVID than she was when she's norm- working her normal job. But it's got to be up, and I can understand that. You know, just from an anecdotal level, boots on the ground, I, I can really understand why why that would be up. What What about fiber like cardboard i would have to think that with people not going to re, you know to retail locations as much and ordering online and and having more things shipped to their home that the demand for cardboard would be up is it the paper and packaging numbers are are up as well 
and those do trickle down. They trickle down to your pulp prices. So that's good for your demand for your pulp wood products. You've seen a shift from your pulp and paper manufacturers out of paper. Printing and writing papers have been pretty much dead during this period. But your, like you said, your your packaging is way up during this time. So, and a lot of that is from your retail packaging, but it's also from your food packaging and and other packaging sources that are out there. Well, Jonathan, the next time we talk, we're going to be talking about Texas. And I want to also get into some more of this supply and demand and specifically the relationship between timber prices and lumber prices. Because we, if you've been to Lowe's recently, you've definitely seen some increased lumber prices. And I want to talk about how that will relate back to the timber market. But we don't have enough time for that today. So if we do appreciate you giving us the update this month. If folks want to get up with you uh, and get a subscription to Timber March South and stay up to date on, on everything we've been talking about today and more all over the South, how do they do that? It sounds great. Um, I look forward to our next show. Reach out to us on our website at timbermarchsouth.com. We cover from Virginia to Eastern Texas, and we have two regions per state, and we would love to work with you, get you signed up for a subscription so that you get good quality information to make decisions on your on your investment. Thanks for the update, Jonathan. Thanks for having me on. And this week's current timber prices update has been brought to you by Bay County Armory. If you're looking to build an AR-10 or AR-15, be sure to check out Bay County Armory. BCA builds firearms that suit your individual needs. They're built for the task you're going to tackle, whether that's hunting, defense, or something else altogether. Bay County Armory purpose-built AR-10s and AR-15s. They'll guide you in designing the firearm of your dreams. Check them out at baycountyarmory.com or give them a call at 850-832-2238. All right, well, Clint, we are always looking for more ways that landowners can make more money off of their property and simultaneously benefit the wildlife in the area, benefit the ecosystem, finding that, that I, you know, a Pareto optimal, you know, you want to find that best of both worlds or in some cases, best of, of many worlds situation where it's helping the pocketbook, but not hurting the environment. And I think that's a, for a lot of landowners, that's really the dream. And today's show is going to be exciting because we're going to be talking about silvo pasture and, and silvo pasture has been around for a really, really long time, but it's starting to gain more attention. And we're going we're gonna to learn about what silvo pasture is and some of the benefits, some of the drawbacks, economical and ecological effects that it can have on your property. And to do that, uh, we are having Becky Barlow join us again. And Becky is an associate professor uh, with the School of Forestry and Wildlife Sciences at Auburn University, War Eagle. And Becky, welcome back to Hunting Land. Now, you work with Auburn University, but you also work with the Alabama Cooperative Extension System, right? Hey, yeah, good to be back. Yes, I do. I, um, I have a kind of what they call a split appointment, I guess. So I work for Auburn University, but as you said, I also work for Alabama Cooperative Extension. So my position is I teach forestry classes within the School of Forestry and Wildlife Sciences, and then I also help teach landowners and provide information to landowners about forestry and forest management. 
Tell me about silvopasture. This is one of those things, you know, it's kind of like grass-fed beef and no-till farming. It's starting to get a lot more attention for the ecological benefits, but also it's, I'm finding out that the economic benefits really seem to be there as well. So in a nutshell, describe what silvopasture is. Yeah, so silvopasture is what people sometimes call the cows and trees model of of agroforestry. So agroforestry is the bigger kind of overarching, the umbrella under which a lot of different practices sit, and silvopasture is one of those. And so silvopasture is where you manage an acre of property for trees, for livestock, and for forage. So you're managing those three pieces all together to create a benefit. Now, you know, when we think about trees in the South, we most of the time we're thinking about pines, but can this be done with, with other types of, of trees? Like if somebody wanted to do silvopasture, say in a pecan orchard or fruit orchard, you know, does it just have to be timber uh, or can it be incorporated with other things? Yeah, it can certainly be uh, used with other things. And actually, and you think about the Midwest, they use other tree species other than pines. For the southeastern United States, pines are typically the primary ones we think about using. Uh, Slash pine was where the original work was done with silvopasture in the southeast. Um, Then loblaw pines, but you can also use longleaf pines, shortleaf pines, any of those work. But you could also, if you had pecans, there's no reason why you couldn't use those Hickories, um, walnuts, things like that are, are popular more, again, in, in the Midwestern states as well. So you get that nut revenue as well as the, the shade for the livestock and the forage. And is that the real benefit to the livestock, for example, is are they benefiting from the shade and that's it for them? Or are there other benefits to silvopasture for, for the livestock? And also, what, what kind of livestock can you use? Does it have to be cattle? Yeah, so for the livestock, the shade is a huge piece. And you think about here in the southeastern United States, again, if you've been driving down the road, maybe you don't have a farm, but you've probably driven down a road and you've seen that pasture with that one lone tree in the middle and all the cows are like hunkered down in that shade on a summer day. So one of the nice things about having a silvo pasture is you have trees distributed across your, your area where you've got livestock grazing so they can move around a lot more then stay in the shade. They don't have to just stay in that one spot under that one shade tree. So they, because they move around, you don't have compaction, soil erosion, just in that one spot. It also, again, makes things a lot cooler for them. And also it can improve your forage production. When it's the cooler temperatures, it allows you to use different types of forage as well. You don't have to just use those traditional sun-loving pasture grasses. It allows you to think about using some native grasses as well. Becky, on the ecological side for the timber, when I think of livestock grazing under, are they fertilizing that plantation for us? Yeah, that's one thing that it really does help on both sides from the fertilization standpoint of having something like cattle out there. I know people who also use sheep or goats to graze underneath the trees. I also know people who have chickens that they use and um, have, they move them around. They have little chicken tractors. And so they move them around across the forest and the chicken droppings provide nitrogen um, into the soil. And so is really helpful as a fertilizer as well. So there's that piece of it. And then also when you think about having trees in the forest still established, that helps with that nutrient cycling and helps prevent a lot of 
runoff into creeks and streams that we think about as a problem, especially with large scale cattle operations. There's a lot of concern with carbon and also uh, emissions and also with nutrients running into creeks and streams. And so having a timbered area can help reduce both of those. And I imagine it keeps your understory in check for the wildlife so the, they benefit as well. Yes, and wildlife love silvopastures that I've seen. I actually had a landowner one time that I worked with who had, he had um, oaks in, his, in, in the overstory and then he grazed goats but he also planted those understories with, with grasses, sometimes ryegrass and things. And he said the deer would come in and eat up all of his ryegrass before he could rotate his goats around to his new plantings. So he, he was benefiting the wildlife as well as the, his. Uh, you got that guy's number, Becky? I, I think I can <laughs> help him out. Yeah, we've, we've talked about all the benefits of, you know, chemical treatments and, you know, control burns and things like that you know, over the past couple of years. And, this seems like a really good way to achieve that same result in a less intensive method. Yeah. I mean, you can burn a silvopasture, um, no problem. But also, like you're saying, there's a lot of communities and areas where prescribed fire is really difficult to do. And in the Southeast, as I know y'all probably talked about, it's, it's hard to get good burn days. So by controlling or managing your understory with livestock is, a, is an interesting thought as, as an alternative that I think a lot of times people haven't, haven't considered. You know, we talked about ecological benefits, and it sounds like it is a symbiotic relationship between the livestock and these forage grasses and, and the trees growing there. Are there any ecological drawbacks to silvopasture? Is there anything that somebody needs to really be careful of if they're establishing it, or what, what could go wrong here? Um, I think one of the things is really from... It's almost like from a management side, from the timber piece of it, you really need to think about actively managing that and actively managing your timing of your thinning and the trees. Also, when it comes to the livestock, you have to actively manage the grazing of it. This is not a, as I like to say, this is not a plant it and leave it system. This is not a pine plantation you can plant and walk away you know, if you're an absentee landowner, this is probably, unless you've got somebody to manage it for you, this is probably not your best option. You know, silvopasture is not something you probably want to consider um, because you have to manage your livestock because if you don't, they can easily overgraze an area that can cause additional erosion problems. Again, people sometimes wor worry about compaction issues and erosion issues caused by the livestock. But one of the benefits, as we mentioned, is that your livestock are more likely to move around over a larger area so it can actually limit some of those concerns. The grazing piece of it and overgrazing an area and then timing your thinnings. Yeah, so, so I mean it sounds like the biggest drawback is that this just takes more work. But yeah. you know, I mean, usually with any type of management, more work typically results in more dollars in the end. So I mean from a from an economical perspective, an acre of silvopasture as opposed to say an acre of just plantation timberland. What kind of volume, you know, of wood production can you expect? I mean, are they going to be drastically different for the landowner who's trying to decide uh, if this is, is right for them? How do the dollars and cents add up? So that's one thing is you're not, you don't have as many trees out there per acre on a silvopasture. Typically, um, the way they're planted is that you have usually two or three rows of trees planted really close together really dense. And then you have a wide alley 
of usually 40 to 60 feet where you can have the grass, you know, sunlight for the grass to grow in between those double or triple row sets, as they call them, of trees. So you have a lot of trees growing in a, in a small area, but per acre, you know, you're usually somewhere down in the 300-ish range of trees per acre, thinking about it distributed. Compared to the normal, what, what would you say, 600 in a... 600, yeah. Yeah, so you're about half of what you would think about maybe for a typical loblaw pine plantation, for example. But one of the things that you do have to think about is the timing. And so you have to thin them pretty heavy early on because you start to have competition because really they're growing. If you think about them growing on, on a really tight spacing, they're growing at something more like you know, 700 trees to the acre so you have to thin them earlier maybe than you would think about because it can impact your wood quality. So thinning early and actively thinning is really important there. And you have to think about the, the money that you get though from the cattle or your livestock and your forage. And a lot of times, historically, when I've looked at it, you think about the prices for cattle when they're up, timber is usually down and vice versa. So the kind of the power in this is you have short-term revenue or cash flow produced from your livestock and your forage because you can hay your forage if you need to and sell it or you can use it for your livestock and then you've got your cattle and then you have the longer-term revenue source from the timber. So it kind of, it helps kind of offset that longer-term revenue source of it. The weight. That's always the, the complaint you hear about timber investments when they're in that pre-merchable state is having to wait for that income. Even though the values grows every year, the, you don't see the income return until it hits a merchable state. Yeah. That's what I really see here is the safety and diversification, like you mentioned, you know, and being able to have a little income coming in every year while you wait on that timber to mature. Yeah. And the fact that pulpwood prices are so low right now for pine pulpwood prices are really low. And I mean, we have a family friend, he lives in Mississippi, but where he is located with his family farm and he has pine plantations you know, that were planted and need to be thinned, but there's really no, at this point, there's really no good market. He's too far away from some of the, the pulpwood mills and it is going to cost him money to thin out his trees. And he does know he doesn't want to spend the money to thin it. And I told him, I'm like, you got to think long-term here. You know, because if you don't thin them now, it's you're going to impact your growth long term and you're not going to have good revenue. And so if he had something like this where he could have some revenue coming in from other sources that could kind of help offset that and then help him kind of think, you know, longer term about his management would be helpful to him. Well, you're talking about the pulpwood situation and those prices have been down for a while. When you're planting in these uh, in a silvo pasture environment, let's just talk about pines for a minute. Are you still going to take pulpwood out? You mentioned, you know, how to do that thinning earlier. Are those trees, when they're thinned, are they thinned as pulpwood or are you managing for, you know, your higher grade saw timber poles and veneer blocks, things like that? Does it give you a, a mixture of timber types when you're doing silvo pasture? It does. So that's one thing you do have to thin out pretty early and you do thin out, you know, it is going to be pulpwood that you're going to thin from those first thinnings with the thought that you're going to be thinning them pretty heavy early on to get a good spacing and to get good you know, room to grow. And so with the hope that eventually you're going to be growing 
you know, those trees are going to respond to that thinning and you're going to be growing larger quality, you know, higher quality saw timber and veneer blocks, things like that is what a lot of times people are trying to go for with those thinnings. For the species that are conducive to it, can you still do pine straw in this setting? Or if you're going to do silvo pasture, is, is pine straw off the table? You can definitely do pine straw. Um, another landowner that I've worked with who had a silvo pasture, he had actually a longleaf pine silvo pasture. And longleaf pine, I think we've talked about is, you know, that's the, the higher quality, a lot of times more sought after pine straw. And he had a longleaf pine silvo pasture and he grazed cattle in the understory in the, you know, in the spring and summer months. In the fall, he would pull the cattle off about the time pine, the pine straw would drop. And then so that the pine straw would have a, you know, would be clean and you wouldn't have the cattle, you know, stepping on it and things. And so then in usually December, January, he'd harvest his pine straw and he was getting, you know, more than a hundred bales to the acre off of his pine straw. So he'd rake his pine straw. Then in the spring, he'd put his cows back out there. So, and that's one of the things that we think about a lot of times too, I think we've talked about is getting your understory in shape and having a nice clean understory for raking your pine straw. For him, you know, it was like raking up in somebody's yard, the pine straw, because it was so nice and clean in the understory. So it was really, it was really sought after and was, and was good quality pine straw. So definitely you could do the two together. So you could market that as organic fertilized pine straw. That's right. That's right. Grass fed organic. Yeah. That's right. And that's what he was looking to do was trying to do grass fed beef and have, you know, or grass finished beef and have them. And one of the things he also talked about, which I thought was pretty great. He thought about putting chickens out there so that you have the cows and then you put the chickens out there, you move them around to kind of break up the cow pies and take care of that and move that along a little faster. And then you could rake the pine straw after that. So it was, he definitely had thought about it as a, a system. And I think that's the way you have to think about it is how, how does one thing that you do influence the next thing? What can you do to make it better? There's a really, uh, a really great author and progressive farmer up in Stanton, Virginia, named Joel Salatin, and, and he writes about all these things. And, and one of the things he writes about it, he's got a book called You Can Farm. And it, one of the things he talks about a lot in that book is for young farmers and for people that are wanting to get into the types of practices that, that you're talking about where establishing these pasture systems, it's not just cattle, you know, it's cattle followed by chickens and, you know, incorporate, they're incorporating ducks and they're incorporating goats and they're doing all these different things. But one of the things he talks about is that when you're just getting started, buying land is the first thing that most people consider. But really for that young farmer, they don't need to worry about buying land. They need to learn how to farm. And then, and there's plenty of landowners out there who would love to have a tenant farmer come in and establish these kind of practices on their farm. So I think for landowners, if you can find a person who's interested in doing these types of things, they're, they're going to be more than willing to rent your property and establish this there. One of the things he does there in Virginia, I've actually been to his farm in Virginia and, you know, in their, in their hardwood areas, they actually do some of the same things with pigs. So they're bringing them in after the acorns fall and, and bringing them in to eat those as well. And uh, it's just really neat to see what you're, some of the things you're talking about uh, in practice where all these animals are working in concert 
to and it, and it benefits the the land and he's actually growing topsoil or you know adding topsoil to his property there this is a lot of really interesting things and back to the livestock question i would have to think there's got to be a period of time when if you're establishing timber say in a pasture that you can't put livestock in there i mean a goat or a sheep for example is going to go in there and chew on anything they can <laughs> anything they can get to i imagine cattle would do damage to your timber so for somebody who's establishing timber in a pasture how long are how long is that wait going to be before they can put livestock in there with their timber and is it a, a an age or a height that you're shooting for yeah i think you really need to think about height and that's what everything that i've seen and read it says, you know, you get about, if you get your trees up about six feet, if you get them about six feet tall, then they're what they like to call livestock resistant. Um, and, it, and that depends on your livestock. Like you were saying, you know, I had a person tell me one time when I was first thinking about silvopasture and, and doing some demonstrations and things. And I thought about goats and I had this producer and he, he said, said, Becky, I don't think you want to use goats. I'm like, well, why not? I think goats would be, you know, I think we could do this area and use goats. And he's like, do you know how to tell if a fence is, you know, is goat proof if the goat can't get out? And I said, no, how, how do you do that? And he said, you take, it a bu- take a bucket of water and you throw it at the fence. And if the water goes through the fence, the goat will too. And so <laughs> I was like, good to know. So, yeah, you know, I think we have to you know, think about what livestock we want to use and, and how we want to do that. But the, you know, and goats are known for climbing things and for standing on their back legs and eating the tops out of things. So, you know, I think it, that six foot point is a good place to, to get them so your trees are sturdy enough to hold up to your livestock you're going to have in there. The sheep are a little less likely to be rowdy and, and do things and cows what I've learned from producers that have been successful with this is they said, one, don't put a bull in there early on because bulls are a little bit more rowdy too. And they're likely just to stomp on things and walk over things and not care. And then also be sure you have a good worming program on your livestock to make sure they're not itchy and they're not there trying to rub on stuff. They say, you know, that's important as well. And so you have to think about your species of trees that you're planting. And we had a a demo down in South Alabama around Atmore where we planted loblolly silvopastures and longleaf silvopastures. And, you know, longleaf has that grass stage and they're a little bit slower to kind of have that early height growth. But what we found was that the longleaf were about a year behind the loblolly in getting, on average, to getting to that six foot point. And that was about at about you know four years is four or five years you're usually pretty safe thinking that your trees are going to be on average you know six feet tall you were mentioning you know we're, we're going to have a period of time there depending on what type of tree you plant where you can't put livestock in but in that period you're producing forage i believe earlier you said that the spacing in between the the rows of timber is going to be 40 to 60 feet are the current producers that are doing this right now, are they able to hay their pastures while their timber is getting bigger and they're waiting to put livestock in? Yes, for sure. Um, especially if you have a, if you've planted your civil pasture in an old pasture where you've got a good productive hay field, 
you know, you can certainly hay between those rows. And that's one thing you need to think about when you're spacing out your trees and how wide you want those alleys to be is think about the size of your equipment and what you're going to be working with to make sure that they're wide enough that you can get your equipment down those rows um, efficiently and also be sure that you have them so that you can make those turns at the end of the rows and not run over your trees. And another thing is be sure we learned the hard way, be sure that the people running your equipment are well-trained and know um, what you're doing because we had on the longleaf silver pasture I mentioned earlier, you know, longleaf stays in that grass stage and they can easily get covered up with grasses and things. And we had whole areas where they took the bush hog and just like mowed down our trees because they didn't, they didn't know they were there. So that was very, so be sure that the people that run your equipment are know what you're doing and, and know to be on the lookout for those trees. On the rows of trees, we'll just use pine in this example. I mean, what is the, the density in those areas that you usually see planting occur? So usually, um, or, the, or excuse me, the spacing of the density. Yeah. So the spacing is usually, and again, it depends on what you want to do, but somewhere around um, like a six by six, or a four by six, some people use a four by six, so four feet within the rows and six feet between the rows. You could do you know, eight feet between the rows and six feet within the rows. Somewhere in there is what people usually use. Okay. Becky, once the, the trees are starting to get to a point where you're concerned about pruning, I'm assuming in this setting, the trees don't self-prune the way they usually would in your conventional plantation. So once you get there, if you've got a landowner that's trying to grow into products that are, you know, like logs or poles or things where that's a major concern, you know, how is that typically addressed? Yes, pruning, I'm glad you brought that up because that's such an important thing to think about. As we mentioned, they're planted, trees are usually planted in a silo pasture in these double row sets, so they're very close together on the insides of these rows, and then the outsides of these rows, they have these wide alleys. So, trees are naturally going to try and reach for the sunlight. And so they're going to put a lot of their growth and a lot of their branching into those outside areas that are reaching out toward those alleys. And then because they're planted so closely together in between the rows, they're going to, they're going to self prune pretty quickly. So you can very easily get a, a lopsided tree. And with that, you can also get lopsided growth within the tree rings. You want to be very aggressive and think about early pruning with your trees um, because like you said they're not going to naturally self-prune and that is a cost that people need to have consider and have that in mind when they go into this because you're probably you always want to keep about 40 percent of your tree height overall height in live crown so in other words you want 40 percent of your tree roughly to have green branches on it usually by the time, you know, your trees get up, and it depends on the species too, you know, as long, when they get up to be six to 10 feet, you might want to start taking off some of those lower live limbs to make sure that you're, you're getting that pruning and not have ended up with a bunch of big branches on them. One of the things we saw with the long leaf that we planted in the civil pasture setting, that sometimes they would have branches down at the ground, yeah. you know, really toward the base that were really large and unwieldy and so those needed to were ones that you would certainly need to take off as well and sometimes our loblies would look like on the outside look like a christmas tree because they just have branches all the way down to the ground 
So it's, it's going to vary by species and kind of vary by your situation, but definitely something you want to keep an eye on as far as early pruning. And again, I would say definitely within those first 10 years, you're probably going to have to have some sort of pruning done. And do you prune annually or every few years or how does that work? I think you could probably get away with pruning every few years. You know, I think if you, I don't know exactly again, the timing, but I think if you checked it probably every two to five years, just to see what needed to be done, I think that would be plenty to do. So it sounds like that for the landowner who's willing to either get their hands dirty or can find tenant farmers who can come in and establish these practices, there's going to be more, more money and more regular income uh, with silvo pasture as opposed to just growing trees. And then for the guy who's already got pasture, he's going to have that, that long-term benefit, that, that long-term crop in the timber. So I guess the two, you know, the two methods for establishing this would be if you've got existing pasture, then you're just going to plant trees. If you've got timberland, then you're going to want to establish pasture within that. Are there any areas, uh, say, that silvo pasture just won't work or, you know, any timber types where this just won't work? I think the thing you need to think about is your topography. That's the, probably the biggest one that people need to consider because if you have a really steep site, maybe a really rocky site, and it's going to be difficult to either to hay or to get your grasses established. You know, if you've got a forested area, that may not be the ideal situation for setting up a silvo pasture. Um, it is a little bit more difficult to, if you have a woodland or a pine plantation that you're trying to convert to a silvo pasture because you're gonna to have to go in and you are gonna to have to thin it out. You're probably gonna to need to figure out what kind of understory you want to establish there too. So pasture grasses, need a lot of sun. Native grasses, if you're thinking about trying to promote native grasses like blue stems, or if you're trying to promote native forages or forbs, those types of things, then they can take a little bit more shade. And so they're a little bit easier to establish in the understory of, of a thinned area. Or you can also kind of burn it and kind of see what comes back, burn it a few times, or maybe use a combination of some herbicides and fire and see what kind of native understory you get that might work as a, as a grazing opportunity. But really the biggest limitation I think is your topography and really steep areas are ones I would say, probably wanna stay away from trying to do any type of silvo pasture on those. Becky, a lot of people just don't wanna fool with cattle and that's a, that's a non-starter for them. But is it still silvo pasture if you take out the managed grazing component? Like if a guy wanted to do, say, hay, timber, and pine straw, is that more just agroforestry or, or is that still considered silvo pasture? So the silvo pasture does have the cows or the livestock, the trees and the forage is it to be officially the silvo pasture. But as I mentioned earlier, you know, you have agroforestry is kind of that overarching umbrella. And that includes things like, what they call forest farming, which includes like growing or managing for pine straw or managing things in your understory, even things like growing mushrooms or harvesting mushrooms. So I think it would still be considered a, a silvo, pra um, I mean, I'm sorry, an agroforestry practice, 
um, it just wouldn't be officially silvo pasture if you did not have the the livestock component. Then you could get into something like alley cropping, and we we could discuss that on another show because <laughs> yeah. you yeah. know then you you take the uh, you take the grazing component out of it. Now you got a a crop in between your trees and. I want to get back into the wildlife aspect of this for a minute because we talked, you were talking about the landowner that had a really good deer population and they were really benefiting from the silvo pasture. What about some of our other species? Like I'm a turkey fanatic and quail have taken a hit. I mean, is this good habitat for, for turkeys and quail? It really is. As far as you think about, you have this grassy open understory and then you have you know, the areas with the trees and the, as for cover in the overstory, turkey, I see a lot of turkey in silvo pastures. I see quail. I, I can see it would be really good for quail and rabbits. I have seen so many rabbits in silvo pastures. I'm not sure exactly why, but I think because you have those grasses and sometimes the areas right under the trees are a little bit, maybe the grass gets a little bit taller in some cases depending on what kind of grasses you have. And so they have these areas of cover and then they have more open areas. So that's definitely something. And, and deer also, again, I don't know if it's because you have these alleys where you have the trees and then you have the open areas, but deer really, really seem to like, seem to enjoy silver pastures. Well, you're talking, talking my language now. I mean, it, it's, it's really neat just to see that people are getting involved with their land and they're able to make more money, enjoy it more, do better things for the overall environment around them. And anytime we go into a topic like this, it raises more questions. If somebody wants to get involved with some of the outreach that you guys do, maybe attend a workshop on silvo pasture i could even see you know being able to find uh, tenant farmers and trying to get the right people in to do this on land that they have that they can or don't want to manage themselves do you have any resources that you could point people to where they could look for some of these workshops and some of these uh, educational opportunities yes so i have to say alabama cooperative extension system who i work for we do have workshops We've had face-to-face workshops. Um, Right now, of course, we're doing just about everything online as a webinar format, but we have those that are out there for folks that folks can attend. We also have publications that folks can download off of our website. That's acesaces.edu. So we have ones on silver pasture. We have ones on pine straw raking. Then also the National Agroforestry Center. It's out of Lincoln, Nebraska. If you go there, you can just Google National Agroforestry Center. And it is a joint venture, essentially, between the Forest Service and the NRCS. And so they have tons of information about all different types of agroforestry techniques, whether it be windbreaks, which we don't use a lot down here. But they talk about, you were talking about alley cropping, they have lots of information there. There's a workshop, a little short workshop online about silvopasture. So if you're just trying to think about it, if it's something that might be good for you, it's a little short online workshop you can do there. So there's, there are lots of different resources. One of the downsides I have to say is that we don't have a lot of good networking opportunities when it comes to trying to find people. For example, you know, pine straw raking. If you were trying to find somebody that could rake pine straw for you. There's not a lot of good databases out there for that or, you know, finding somebody that might want to graze cattle on your property. I think that's more something that takes a little bit more like word of mouth. 
And then also in Alabama, anyway, we have uh, what we call forest county forestry planning committees. So they meet, they may meet quarterly, but they are made up of folks usually that are landowners, folks with the NRCS, folks with the Forestry Commission, and with Extension, we come together and meet. And then it also is a really good networking opportunity for you to be able to talk to other landowners who've kind of been there, done that. And folks with the NRCS are really good resources as well when it comes to grazing land and, and grazing land quality and being able to make sure that you're setting up your pastures in the right way. So those are some resources I can think of off the top of my head that might be useful. Well, Becky, uh, we certainly appreciate it. It's been a pleasure talking to you again and uh, enjoyed having you back on. We're going to look forward to having you on again sometime soon and uh, maybe it'll be alley cropping. Maybe it'll be something else altogether, but I hope you have a a good rest of this fall and uh, we're going to be looking forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks. It's always fun. I appreciate you guys having me on and hope you have a a good rest of the year as well. I don't talk to you before the end of the year. Thanks, Peggy. Clint, let's talk about the dollars and cents of somebody thinking about doing this. I was on a sold a piece down in uh, Washington County, Florida, not too long ago. And that piece was being, it was a 40 acre parcel and it was being hayed on halves with a tenant farmer. And the, the net income to the landowner, haying on halves, was about $110 per acre for the hay. So if you started to look at what your annual income could be from doing, from establishing silvopasture, I mean, you think back to the pine straw show we did with Becky previously. What did she say? What was that range she gave us for, uh, for pine straw per acre of net income to the landowner? I mean, it, it depended on how they, of course, how the deal was struck, but it was 150 to $250 an acre. Yeah. And I think, you know, it depended too on the type of straw. There were some that probably were less, but I mean, you could probably settle on a, roughly a hundred dollars per acre as a conservative estimate for pine straw. Yep. And then if you figure haying on halves or, or renting the, the land out to a livestock producer, you're probably conservatively, you could put things 50 to a hundred dollars an acre. So I mean, I think in a worst case scenario here with Silvo pasture, you're talking about a hundred dollars per acre per year in income and on up to maybe even up to $300 per acre per year. That's pretty significant and not, and not harming your wildlife situation at all in the process. Well, if done right, it's enhancing it. And then it's taking a level of maintenance off your shoulders as a landowner that you might ordinarily, you know, be looking at doing from you know, herbicide treatments to burning and things like that. So, and like Becky pointed out today, there's a, now you've got annual income coupled with long-term investment. So you're, you're winning on both ends. Well, and like you just said, that's important too. You know, I mean, prescribed fires, they cost you something to do. So if you could get to where you don't have to use fire and the understory is being managed by the, by the cattle and, uh, or, or being managed by your farmer, uh, that's going to save you some money as well. Not to mention, you know, just the, like we talked about all those benefits, you're adding fertilizer every year. And <laughs> it's definitely something to think about for the, for the guy that has got existing pasture and wants to have that long-term crop of trees. And, you know, I mean, what do you see for the, for the guy that has got timberland doing this? I guess the biggest thing is just going to be establishing those pasture grasses. Yeah, but once yeah. you got it, once you got it in place, the other thing too, I like about it is, whether it's you or a tenant farmer, you've got 
somebody on your property keeping an eye on it too if you're not there all the time yeah it's always a nice a nice dividend to this these type situations well folks that's going to wrap it up this week as always please be sure to subscribe rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts and if you'd like us to email you this podcast each week it's really easy all you've got to do to join our email list is text the word hunting to 773-770-4377 again just text the word hunting to 773-770-4377 you'll join our weekly email list and get the new show as soon as it is available until next week guys y'all have some fun out there we'll talk to you again soon this week's Sunland podcast is brought to you by Alabama Black Belt Adventures and their new coffee table book, Black Belt Bounty. It celebrates the traditions of hunting and fishing so deeply embedded in the folks who get to call the Alabama Black Belt home and the folks who enjoy. It's got unbelievable writing from award-winning writers, excellent photography, and some really awesome recipes. If you want to pick up a copy, just go over to the Alabama Black Belt Adventures website at alabamablackbeltadventures.org slash Black Belt Bounty. This week's show has been brought to you by Joe Baya and Clint Flowers, members of the top producing team at National Land Realty. With interest rates at historic lows, now's a great time to buy or sell land. If you want to learn more, shoot us an email at pros at landhunting.com or call us at 855-NLR-LAND. And also Bay County Armory. Building an AR-10 or AR-15 can be a daunting task. Don't let the feeling of overwhelm stop you from having the exact AR you want. Give Bay County Armory a call at 850-832-2238 or check them out online at baycountyarmory.com. And also brought to you by First South Farm Credit. First South Farm Credit can help you finance or refinance that perfect piece of land. First South shares its profits with its borrowers in the form of a patronage refund, which lowers your cost of borrowing. To find out how First South can help you, visit their website at firstsouthland.com or call them at 800-955-1722. They are an equal housing lender. And also brought to you by Wildlife Management Solutions. The experts at Wildlife Management Solutions can guide you on selecting the best forage for your soils and goals. So give them a call at 877-400-8089 or check out their website with more information and a full dealer list at productsforwildlifemanagement.com.